Hello and welcome to the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm your host, Carlos Doughty, and I'm also the founder of the MarTech Alliance. You can find out more about us at martechalliance.com. But today, more importantly, we are chatting with the fantastic Rand Fishkin about his epic book, Lost and Founder. Rand, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Carlos, thank you so much for having me. Great. So to give a little bit of background, Rand is the founder of SparkToro. Previously, he was co-founder of mozandinbound.org. He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through his Whiteboard Friday video series. In fact, I was a long-time watcher of that. In fact, my entire team used to watch it together. He's also his fantastic book and also his blog. With all this going on, Rand, could you talk us through what an ordinary day looks like? <laughs> now, there's not a lot of ordinary days, but um, sure. Basic story is I uh, in Seattle, Washington. I work in this, this lovely tool shed out back of my house. I'm on the road probably... Ooh, about 100 days a year. So a lot of days are spent you know, in hotels and, and at conferences and events uh, for travel, especially with the book just coming out. But when I'm here, I often do a number of calls and discussions with folks to chat about marketing-related topics. Recently, I've been trying to learn a lot more about how people do their discovery for PR and influencer marketing and those kinds of things, which are new, relatively new subjects for me. And then... I work with a co-founder, Casey Henry, on SparkToro. Uh, Casey is in the Seattle area, but um, he probably comes to the office <laughs> uh, once every couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we'll do some brainstorming on the whiteboard and that kind of thing. So a lot of my days are spent in meetings and discussions with, uh, with folks external to the company, and then a lot, of, um, a lot of writing, good amount of preparing presentations, that kind of thing. Okay, so for anybody that possibly hasn't read the book, if we gave you 60 seconds on the clock, would you mind just giving us your succinct summary and also kind of why any founder, any CEO, any marketer should grab a copy right now? Yeah, so idea behind the book is that traditional Silicon Valley startup wisdom, including a lot of wisdom around marketing, around uh, how you should raise investment capital, about how you should run a company, biases founders and startups and even companies that are not startups to do a lot of dumb things, a lot of things that are not ideal for the kinds of businesses that you or that I might have. And I think because, because of the popularity, because of the media coverage, because of a lot of the you know, current best practices and cutting edge tactics are directed towards those kind of companies, it can make the rest of us fall prey to irrational tactics that we probably shouldn't be pursuing. And this book is designed to help you avoid that. So it says, oh, look, we went down, I went down this path. It wasn't the right one. Here's what I learned from it. Here are some ways you might be able to avoid that. Here are some alternatives to consider. Thank you. So one of the things that jumped out to me is obviously Moss started as a consultancy and it seems to be quite a common theme that there's a lot of software companies that originate as a consultancy. In fact, Gary Vaynerchuk's recent um, launch of Tracer through uh, VaynerMedia is another example. What do you think it is about the DNA of running a consultancy or an agency that sets you up right to have a software company or marketing technology company platform after? Yeah, I mean, there's positives and, uh, positives and negatives about being in a consultancy and then building a software company. So one of the biggest positives, of course, is that as a consultant, you're seeing and experiencing a lot of the same problem from many different companies over and over again. And that can certainly be, be helpful. One of the challenges, though, is that 
the customers that you have as a consultant are not often great fits for software, which means you, need, you, your business, needs to be attracting a different kind of customer who is a right match for software. People who are coming for services, they need services. They need someone who can walk them through it and, and talk to them and do the work. They don't need just an automated solution. And it's extraordinarily rare that an automated solution can truly replace the process of what a consultant can do. Now, that being said, I think um, where a lot of folks go wrong is they think, hey, I've built up a successful consultancy. We've got a software product that does some of the things that you know, we did as consultants that solve some of those problems. And then they go out and try and find customers for it and they can't either affordably find those customers, it just costs too much to find each new customer, or it's the case that, and or it's the case that customers that they are attracting are not right matches for what they've built on the software side. And I think you can solve this sort of the way Moz did, and I, I suspect the same way that Gary Vaynerchuk solved this, which is to have a platform that is building up the right audience for your product that's not necessarily the right one for your, your consultants. And we fell into that by accident, I suspect uh, Gary's probably much more intentional about that. Great, thank you. Okay, so this one's a bit of a loaded question, but do you think Eric Bree's lean methodology, lean startup methodology is simply wrong? You know, you talked a lot about EVP oh. versus MVP, um, or is it actually just about adaption, interpretation, actually just understanding where it fits? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the one. So a lot of, when I talk about the reasons that the MVP process uh, has failed for Moz, I think the biggest thing that I hear from a lot of people who are lean startup enthusiasts is, oh, you interpreted the process too literally. And, and you can, in fact, this, this idea of the exceptional viable product does fit into lean startup methodology. So I think it's a, a matter of interpretation. But the challenge that I see again and again is that folks, myself included, you know, read lean startup, get excited about an MVP, and then launch an MVP publicly. And I think therein lies the problem. If you launch an MVP publicly, people will judge your work, judge your company, judge you based on the quality of that minimum viable product. What you're really doing is you're experimenting. An MVP is an experiment to say, can this sort of solve this one problem or these problems in a barely acceptable way that indicates there's a market here? And that's great when you are a tiny company with no reputation, right? You're just starting out. Or if you're a, a bigger company or a company with a reputation or a new founder who has a big audience or whatever it is, but you do it privately, right? You're sort of like, hey, Carlos. I want to show you this thing that I just built and, you know, tell me what you think, uh, but don't, don't share it around yet. It's not ready for public consumption. And you're going to think about that product very differently than you'll think about a product where you see, you know, you see me on Twitter and I'm like, okay, SparkToro's new product is finally launched. And then you're going to go and judge it in a very different kind of way. And that, that's the problem, right? Because people will, when they judge that product launch and you've launched something that is, minimally viable rather than extraordinary, you, you can lose a lot of trust and faith in customers and belief in what you're doing. So that, that's my challenge with it. And one of the other key things that came out from the book was about this, this laser focus. What do you do on a daily basis that kind of, what's your secret, if you like, to staying really focused? Okay, this is going to sound weird, but I try not to create work for myself or my co-founder 
or, you know, when I was at, at Moz, try not to create new work just because I have time and energy to do it. Right. So for example, you know, as a brand new company, we, we finished, we closed our funding round, you know, with, with a bunch of great angels. And um, I find myself with a little bit of spare bandwidth now and then, which is unusual for me. And so what I have to be careful of doing is saying, Hey, Casey, I think we should build this. I think we should build that. Instead, I have to stay focused and say, Nope, we said we were going to build this product for this market. Unless I'm doing work that fits with that, it, it is not worth doing. It's not worth distracting myself. If I want to go, you know, do some side projects or whatever, I'll do them related to personal stuff. But I think staying on target, having a single product that is the best in the world at what it does and is a very narrow thing uh, is going to be, that's what I need to be disciplined about this time around. You know, I tried to do just too much with Moz and I see so many companies feeling that pressure to build the next thing, the next thing, the next thing to try and get growth. When in fact, a lot of times the, the best growth that you can get is from your existing audience, sometimes even your existing customers by continually serving them better. One of the other bits that jumped out and this I really absolutely loved was around making sure that you focus on cultural fit before competency. You know, finding those people that really do share common values. But how do you test for that? How do you interview? How, how do you get people in a room and let's say, you know, let's say three interviews, three hours. Okay, there may be more, but in those three hours, how are we really going to draw out and go, yes, we are from the same tribe. We're going to love working together. It's going to be fantastic. I think a lot of the times you have to ask about past experiences because you can say, hey, are you someone who believes in transparency? And they'll say, you know, yes, I do. I'm, I'm excited about that. But if you instead say, hey, can you tell me about a time in your past work experience when you wanted to be open about something and you felt like you weren't able to be? And what was the conflict there? And how did, how did it get resolved? What did you do? Right? And then you'll see, here's how hard people fight for it. Here's what, here's what they think is truly transparent and not. I think the other thing that you have to be willing to do is to say, you know what? Core values are very hard to interview for. That's a really tough thing to do. And therefore, we have to be willing to bring people on board who might not be a match and to let them go quickly. That, that's another very hard thing for a lot of teams and companies. They'll say, oh, this person, they're doing good work here. We can't, you know, we can't, we can't let them go. They're, they're doing high quality stuff. Well, but if they're not a values and a culture match, they don't believe the same things about, especially about people and how people should be judged and how they should treat one another and you know, what kindness means that you gotta, you gotta say no. It's the impact on the rest of the team as well. It's not assessing individuals as a standalone. It's what impact do they have? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've got, yeah, I think, I think one of the hardest things in the world to do is to fire someone. And we've sort of been culturally conditioned to think that that, you know, is a failure. Like we, we failed, they failed. No, just, just wasn't a match. It's okay. It's not your fault and it's not their fault. That can be a powerful realization. I think that that when you get to that level of maturity, if you can, um, it's hard. That can be an extraordinary boost. I couldn't agree more. I think it's also, it's about finding, you know, if, if it is not the right fit, work it out sooner rather than later because you're only going to find the right fit by moving on quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think if you, can, if you can have that conversation with someone during their interview, on their first day, week one and week two in, Hey, Carlos, welcome to the Spark Toro team. 
I want you to know if it's not a match between us, it is not your fault and it's not my fault. And we're going to part ways with a handshake and a smile and we're going to, you know, remain colleagues for the rest of our professional lives. And we, we promise not to hold it against each other if this doesn't work out, right? It is not, it, you know, this is not going to be like, like we're dating, right? And then we're angry at each other. Oh, my ex-boyfriend, Carlos, oh, he was terrible. You know, like, no, 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 right? We're, we're going we're gonna to promise each other to be cool with it and, and go in with the expectation that, you know, this is what we think the future should look like. And if it doesn't, we're going to part ways, right? And, and hopefully, I think the other thing companies should do around that is to build in a really generous severance package to help make that easier on both the managers who have to let people go and the people who get let go themselves. And so transparency is obviously massive to you and it couldn't be truer just how raw the book is and your blogs are and just how transparent you really are, which I think is, is really commendable. There are obviously a lot of people and a lot of brands that talk about transparency, but they're selective with it, um, yeah. which obviously stops being transparent. Um, do, you, do you think... Do you think every company can really try and embrace it? Or do you think actually it either is or isn't and it's not going to be for everybody? Yeah, that, that's not, just like any other value. I think you should choose to embrace it because you, the human being person who founded the company or is the CEO, truly believe in it and want to strive to live up to that ideal and want to work with people who do. I don't, I absolutely don't think it's right for everyone. And I think if it's not a core value, you are doing yourself a disservice by putting it on your you know, list of values or trying to live up to it or trying to just say, no, transparency, that's, that's not really what I believe in. You know, we, I do believe in, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever qualities might be important to you. Perhaps it's just honesty. So it's not that we're going to be transparent, but we will be honest. If, I, if you ever hear me say anything, that will be the truth. But I'm not going to tell you the whole truth. Right? I'm not going to tell you behind the curtain stuff. I intentionally you know, keep some things uh, secret that I think are important to keep secret, and that's just okay. I mean, Apple basically has a, a core value of secrecy. Right? One of Steve Jobs' core values was we keep it secret. No one can know about this. No one can find this phone. No one can see any of these things. Most of the people in the company don't even know what we're working on. Secrecy. So that, you, can, you can run a very clearly a very successful company with very different kinds of values. Now, we obviously don't have a time machine, but if you could go back to your time at Moz, um, would you do things differently? Or do you think everything was a necessary learning for what you'll now do at SparkToro? Um, I, I, a little bit of both, right? So depends on how your time machine functions. <laughs> if, if you're saying, hey, you have this time machine and you'll know all the things that you know today that you learn through these painful processes uh, and, and you can go back in time and do it over, I would change so many things. I mean, just, you know, I, I don't think I would have raised that second round of funding. I wouldn't have built the Moz Analytics product. Uh, I wouldn't have done most of the acquisitions that I did. Um, I probably would not have stepped down as CEO in 2014. Like a whole ton of things that I would do very, very differently. Um, but that being said, to your point, you don't get you don't get the wisdom without the experiences, and especially for folks like me, like um, I know, especially in my younger days, and probably still today, that I'm I'm stubborn. You know, I a lot of times it takes it takes me going through an experience to 
learn the lessons and extract the knowledge out of that process. I can't just sort of, you know, read an article online or, or you know, or read a book and, and get all of the same knowledge, even if, it te- even if it's telling me to do the same thing. So I certainly am grateful for the experience and for all the learning. Now, from time machines to crystal balls, um, if, if we asked you to look into your crystal ball that you, of course, have lying around. Um, yeah, where, where did I put that thing? <laughs> um, what do you think the impact of voice marketing is going to be? Or if there's anything else you have in your crystal ball in terms of what, 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 if you had to make some outlandish predictions and be speculative about what you think will be happening in marketing in the next 12, 24 months? Interesting, yeah. Um, Let's see. I think I would say on, on voice, so voice activated devices, voice commands, I think there will be a lot of growth. I think many, many people will have them in their homes and potentially even in their businesses and will use them um, to do a lot of the tasks that require, you know, running over the computer and doing something manual today or, or getting our phone and, and doing it there. That being said, I am, I don't think that voice search changes much of anything. You know, me typing in, you know, uh, uh, Googling uh, Christopher Walken movies or whatever it is, right? And, and me actually saying to my phone, Google, Christopher Walken movies. You know, what movies are Christopher Walken in? I, I still get a screen of results, right? The screen of results is not different because I said it versus I typed it. Therefore, I don't think that'll have a big impact. What I do think is having a big impact on on both sides, on, on voice and on type searches, is answers. So Google is showing more and more single answers, right? Here's just the answer to your query, not here's a bunch of results. And they do that through featured snippets, but they do it through a lot of instant answer boxes as well. Um, and, and just, you know, things that they build. Um, I would say the same thing's true on the voice answers side, right? No, there's no page of results. No one can earn a click there. That feels very, I don't want to say, what do I want to say? Uh, it feels dangerous for marketers to get addicted to traffic that might be solved right on the page, right on the, you know, by a voice answer or through, you know, a single result at the top uh, without requiring click. I think we as content creators and as marketers need to think about deeper problems and make sure we can solve those on our website and that we can rank for those. Uh, otherwise we could be in trouble as voice matures. Now, obviously you've got your hands very full with SparkToro. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so SparkToro is a, a software company, a software startup, much like Moz was um, and is. But we are not venture-backed. Uh, we're, we're sort of backed by a consortium of angels, about 35 folks uh, who, who generously decided that they wanted to support the unique model that we're pursuing, which is, which is one of uh, intentional, profitable growth. And uh, our goal is to build a product that will help marketers solve a particular pain point. That pain point being when you have an audience, a, a new audience you want to reach, or you're in a new market, um, you have a new product. We want to help you figure out what are all the publications and people and sources and channels to which your audience pays attention. What, so for example, you know, Carlos, you and I uh, go ahead and start a, um, 
uh, a video game company, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we want to build a, a great video game that's, it's going to be a racing game, right? We're going we're gonna to build the next Mario Kart franchise. Uh, and we've got awesome ideas for it. And, you know, we build our game and now we need to go reach the right audience for it. So maybe we know about a couple players on Twitch that we think will amplify this. And maybe we know a few popular, you know, game publications, blogs or websites or what have you uh, that cover new games. But is that, is that where our audience is hanging out? You know, could we instead say, oh, I want to find all the people who... Uh, paid attention and played this other racing game that came out two years ago. Because we think that's our perfect audience. If you like that game, you're going to love this thing that we built. And now go find, I want to know the podcasts and the YouTube channels and the people on Twitch and the people on Twitter and the Instagram accounts and the people on you know, LinkedIn or Facebook or the blogs or the publications that they read or the events that they go to. I want to know all that stuff without paying $25,000 to a PR company to put that list together for me. And, and that is something that we think our software will be able to solve. You know, you give us a topic or you give us uh, a particular kind of audience or you give us, um, you know, an influential publication or account and we will find, oh, okay, people who like this, people who follow this also follow all these things. People who say they are whatever, uh, you know, video game enthusiasts from the West Coast of the United States, uh, we found that they pay attention to these events, these podcasts, uh, you know, these accounts. And how soon do you think it will be on the market? Golden question was. I'm going to guess at least six months and maybe more like nine, nine to 12 months. Um, I think we'll probably have that first like beta version, you know, that we, share with a few people one-to-one -one, uh, probably by the beginning of the year. And then my hope is that, you know, by this time next year, maybe a little earlier, like the spring, uh, we'll have a, a publicly consumable product. Well, uh, the, the trending homepage is fantastic. I've been using it and oh, cool. quite a few people that are big fans. Yeah, it's great. Also, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, been, uh, that's been really awesome to see, to see that take off. And so many people sort of add it to their bookmarks and put it on their, you know, the homepage of their phone and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what I've got. You've got the classic bookmarks and it's just one of my icons here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just seeing in the background, Brotopia. That's on my hit list, actually. I need to, I need to get around to reading that. I'm just finishing at the moment um, Geek Girl Rising, and that's where that popped up on the radar to read that after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh, a lot of the stories in there are sort of hard to read and, mm -hmm. and require a lot of self-examination. Um, I mean, especially, you know, for me, sort of being a, a white dude tech founder who, you know, raised venture capital. Uh, obviously, I'm not in the geography of Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, but um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, introspection that I think um, Emily's book demands. Right, we've got one final question, um, which I was going to ask you, which is beyond Spartoro. Um, have you got any other projects, anything else in the pipeline? I know you obviously talk about focus, but is there anything else that um, is on the horizon? Uh, so, I mean, I think with the, with the launch of the book and SparkToro, I have been uh, pretty overwhelmed, but I have also been attempting to get off the ground a project to help with um, the coordination of event safety. Now, I've seen uh, a number of people who, almost all men, um, who just sort of acted terribly at conferences and events, you know, using them as 
um, sort of places to uh, hit on women and to treat them terribly and to make them feel very unwelcome. And, and these guys will get banned from one event, but then they'll just, you know, oh, I spoke at these three places, you know, invite me to your event and they'll, they'll just go on to the next one, the next one, the next one. And so I'm trying to get something together where there's um, a consortium of folks who can share information about, you know, actions they've taken against um, speakers or attendees or what have you. Uh, my, my hope was actually to have that ready much earlier, but I'm, um, I'm working with a legal team who is helping me pro bono. So I'm sort of last in line for their, uh, their assistance. So I am still waiting on the legal side and we'll, we'll see where that, where that gets to, but I hope it can come to fruition soon and, and help make events a little more, um, give, give sort of codes of conduct and events a little more teeth in dealing with people who, uh, who would be abusive in those places. Well, we, we'd love to support it, obviously. Um, we, we run a marketing technology festival and we definitely do awesome. support that. Yeah, I would, love, I, would, I would love to get in touch. As soon as I have something ready, let's, uh, let's stay in touch and, and would love to be helpful. Well, Rand, thank you so much again. I do massively, massively appreciate you having taken the time. Um, I love the book. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and for anyone listening who hasn't yet got a copy, do grab one. It's fantastic.